Hello and welcome to Playback Daily, the last day of what felt like a really long month. It's Wednesday the 31st of January. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. We've all seen it. The stats will tell you 80%. um, And so far in our experience, we haven't yet met a single woman wearing the right bra. And then there's regulations in relation to the length of the beard, straight lines under the cheekbones and an inch above the Adam's apple. So you identify the bits that you can change and the bits that you can't change. And I and I see people all the time that have many situations. Like sometimes I have seen people who I know have intolerable stress in their home situation and they don't recognise that their physical symptoms they're coming in to me mm-hmm. are related to that. Cork GAA have announced that Porky Cueve will be renamed Super Value Porky Cueve. There was controversy over the naming earlier in the month. Reporter Brian O'Connell was speaking to people in Cork to see if they're happy with the name change. And here's his report on Today with Claire Byrne. It's a terrible idea. I think it's very disrespectful to Porrick O'Keefe. I think, you know, to commercialise a, a, a public stadium like this, I mean, surely they can find funds elsewhere. What will you be calling it? Parky Cueve or the park as I've always done in my 52 years of being you know anytime you're going down the park for the match it's a, yeah, that, 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 that's how we talk in Cork you know so that's the way it's going to go the Super Value Parky Cueve is that not a good compromise yeah I, no I still think it's the people's park you know I mean it's, ta- it's taxpayers money that, that normally pays, pays it's, it's either it's voluntary hours and taxpayers money that has very much made the GAA and to commercialise that um, through a private for profit company I don't think is fair possibly other, way, me, w- other ways and means around this you know in the likes of um, with the corporate entertainment you've got the, the Munster Crusaders game coming up which is a sellout game this weekend you know I, I believe gigs like that concerts but sure, what's a Bruce Springsteen concert got to do with the GA? Well, th- that's it's, it, it's got to do with access to entertainment and the arts because the community can now buy into that, you know. At 130-odd euro a ticket. Yeah, they get to see Bruce Springsteen down, down, in, down in the park, like. Down in Super Value Parky Cueve, you mean. <laughs> down in the park, bye. <laughs> Super Value Parky Cueve, what do you think of that? Super Value, I think sponsors are probably putting a lot of money into it. And do you think yeah. it's a good compromise? I both should be, uh, I don't mind what they call it. <laughs> yeah. I suppose there's a lot of development development going on in the stadium isn't there and it has to be paid for some way oh yes it has to be paid for will you be calling it super value parky cueve no parky cueve i think it's taken away from the heritage of the city yeah no matter what they call it i think they're still referred to it as parky cueve although people said that about lansdowne road and most people call it the aviva stadium now yeah i get that as well yeah no i just think people from a certain generation will still refer to it as parky cueve you wouldn't stick the super value in front of it would it be upsetting super value people the GA would say there's quite a lot of debt associated with the development and it yeah. needs to be paid for some way. The GA over the since they were founded should have a lot of money, they shouldn't be depending on anyone for funding really, should they? No, so I just think it's the whole history of it, um Perky Keeve. But then again, maybe it's changing times, you know. Brian O'Connell there speaking to people in Cork. Paul Rouse is Professor of History in UCD and Irish Examiner columnist. So Paul, what are you going to po- call Super Value Porky Cueve from now on? Well, writing in the Irish Examiner, I'll call it Super Value Parky Cueve, but I think in, day, in day-to-day conversation, it'll be Parky Cueve. Yeah, I don't know why uh, you would do that, though, because like that point is made that the name will be used in the media, but I don't really understand that because RTE and the Examiner and all the other media outlets aren't getting a cut of the deal. I I, I agree. Uh, I, can, I can see that, but I think it's, 
respect for the organisation uh, in which it's doing. I mean, if I write officially about Lansdowne Road, I will call it the Aviva, Aviva Stadium uh, because that's its official title now. So I, I, I can see... I can see the argument against it. I think in popular speech, there is no doubt that people will regard it as Parky Cueve. I know that in, in Offaly, for example, Glenisk support, uh, Glenisk or the, it's now Glenisk O'Connor Park, but I don't know anybody who calls it Glenisk O'Connor Park. They call it O'Connor Park, but everybody knows it's sponsored by Glenisk. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the reason deals like this need to be done, and in particular this one, there was a, a death there at Cork um, GA for the rebuild of the stadium at over 30 million. And the CEO said on Morning Ireland, the only way they can get rid of that debt is through things like naming rights. I mean, this is a, a difficult position that they're in. Oh, Cork GA, this is the real story here. It is, it is a question of how a stadium redevelopment that was the cost 70 million ended up costing the guts of 100 million, including 30 million of state funding. This is the true uh, significant aspect of this story, not really what it should be called. And it is a, it is not just limited to Cork, by the way. In Kerry, they're talking about redeveloping Killarney at the cost of more than 70 million. We know that there's a proposal to redevelop Casement Park in Belfast for for way, way, way more than that. Similarly, ground redevelopment in in everywhere from Waterford to Kildare to Meath and so on. There was a huge outlay either underway or proposed, uh, which is a combination of GA members' money and state money. And it, it, there has to be a serious question as to the value of money that is that is being spent here. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose if you don't have it or you can't cover it, you shouldn't spend it. It will be the same in, in any household in the country, right? I agree. And I, I think that one of the key documents in all of this, in any of these proposals, must be the cost-benefit analysis of, of, of outlay. I, I think it's fundamental to any business. It's fund, fundamental to the funding of, of, of anything. And it is not obvious to me how how so many parks can claim that they have commercial non-match specific income in everything from concerts to conference facilities. Uh, Ireland Ireland must be going to have bands going to be touring from county to county from on an international basis if all counties are to make their money back through concerts. Mm. What are you saying then, that we don't need these very fancy, modern, upgraded stadia? I think there's an argument. I think the logic of it is that all grounds need to be redeveloped. They need it is the it is a measure of a, a prosperous, thriving organisation. It is a matter of local pride to have a, a a good stadium in your area. That's understood, and it's a legitimate thing. You can learn a lot about a place by walking into its sports ground and and seeing what happens in the place. So yes, money should be spent, but though that money should be proportionate to the area. So for example, if we know that 100 million has been spent on Parky Cueve, mm-hmm. but if now there is to be a redevelopment of Thurles, where is the monster and, and a similar redevelopment in Limerick? Where is the monster hurling go final going to be played in any given year? How are the grounds going to be filled to make this up? The GA has choices to make about which grounds and which places it privileges for its main matches and does not need a whole series of 45 to 50,000 stadiums all around the country. Mm, but you try tell them in Thurles that they're not getting the same upgrade as we've seen in Cork? Well, you can say that if you want to do it, then pay for it. Right. So, and don't do it until you can pay for it. 
don't don't do it until you pay for it. And don't. It is true, by the way, that the model of using concerts to pay for this was was is, is partly to do with Fela clearing the debt on 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 the development of Semple Stadium in Thurles and previously, of course, there's Sheems of Lee in in Cork. But that's there's a there's a there's a limit to this logic. Yeah, that that's going back a long way now. Like I remember not being allowed to go to Fela, Paul. <laughs> Yeah, well, it was very good. It was very good. The photos are brilliant. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. Paul Rouse, Professor of History in UCD and Irish Examiner columnist on Today with Claire Byrne. Only about 6% of people with disabilities in Ireland use public transport without assistance. Now a new project in Dublin's Glasnevin aims to change that with a world first, a transport training facility that will help people with disabilities and mobility issues navigate their way through planes, trams, trains and buses. Morning Ireland had the story. Here's Mary Wilson. It's known as the Wayfinding Centre. The building houses parts of a train carriage, a coach bus, a Lewis, a Dublin city bus, even an Airbus plane interior and a full train platform. Niamhne Hurvard, who is a disability activist, has been telling Anna Verlarchik about some of the challenges she faces while using public transport. Uh, so as a wheelchair user in Ireland, using public transport is quite quite difficult for me. Um Especially if I'm travelling on my own without a companion or, you know, someone to help me on and off the public transport with me. So I mostly have an issue with the train because I'm based in Kildare. And so I would travel quite regularly up to Dublin on the train. The train station where I live is unmanned. So there is no one to physically put the ramp down for me. I kind of have to take a risk most days and hope the driver will see me and put the ramp down on the platform for me. Sometimes that just hasn't worked out. And are you able to use the public transport without any assistance? So I actually find it quite difficult um, to use trains or buses without any assistance to help me up on the ramp and through the bus or train and then especially on buses because the space allocated for wheelchair users is so small and the passageway is so confined that, you know, it can be quite tricky to navigate on my own. And that was Niamhne Hurvard there telling our reporter Anna Verlarchik about some of the challenges she faces in her daily commute. Now, to tell us more about the Wayfinding Centre, I'm joined in studio by Chris White, the CEO of Vision Ireland. You're very welcome, Chris. Thanks, Mary. Um, Niamh setting out very clearly there the challenges she faces, just trying to get onto the train, access public transport without assistance. How will what you're doing now in Glasnevin, in this centre, help people like Niamh? Well, I think um, it's a red-letter day for accessibility generally in Ireland by the opening of the Wayfinding Centre. We have 1.2 million people with disabilities in Ireland, according to the CSO. Um, And the Wayfinding Centre is not the panacea, it's not the the silver bullet for solving all those issues, but what it is, it's highlighting and starting to make changes. So it's looking to do five clear things. One is to help travel train the, the population 
highlight they should get them confident travelling uh, because, as you said, Mary, only 6% of people with disabilities use public transport. Secondly is actually to disability train the 50,000 people who work in public transport. Nobody's anti-disability who work in public transport. It's just raising awareness, understanding and empathy. Mm-hmm. But how we're really going to change Ireland is partnering with the academic institutions in this country to actually educate the engineers, the architects, the surveyors and the planners so that we're not continually retrofitting this country, yeah. that we can actually build a country that is accessible, accessible for all, that everything we do going forward is inclusive, mm. is accessible, and we don't have the challenges that Neve uh, faces every yeah. day because we design them out. And that is as it should be, but as you say, that's going forward with new design and new development. When people come to the Wayfinding Centre, and you know, you've assembled quite an array uh, of equipment here. You have a bit of a Lewis, a bit of a bus, a, a full train platform. So what happens when somebody with a disability or mobility issue comes in to the Wayfinding Centre? What will you help Help them to do. So we're blessed with some fantastic mobility experts in Vision Ireland uh, associated with the Wayfinding Centre uh, and we've developed uh, a leading curriculum uh, which is tailored to the individual needs of the person mm. with a disability, whether that's uh, wheelchair users or vision impaired or hearing loss uh, or other challenges that they have. So we have a tailor-made curriculum that takes them through training, gives them confidence takes the fear, is it, out of going out alone to access public transport? Exactly. Well, I mean, just from a sight loss perspective, one of the bravest things you'll ever do is walk out your front door without being able to see. Yeah. So taking that, building that confidence of actually walking out and taking that first step, mind mapping, ensuring mm-hmm. that you can actually get a very good sense of where you are and what you're doing and the, the environment okay. in which you're so operating. So you, you, you'll almost recreate a street scene for them, but how will people get to you? How do they access the service that you provide? Well, first of all, uh, we're in Glasnevin in the old Smurfit Kappa works and many thanks to Smurfit Kappa for their support in this. Mm-hmm. Um, we chose that site because it's already integrated into the public transport system. There's a bus stop directly outside. There's a coach stop. We're just around the corner from Drumcondra Hard Rail. Okay. We're up the road from Broombridge, uh, Lewis Stop. Uh, round the corner from Dublin Airport and a short mm. taxi drive from City Centre. So they can contact us through Vision Ireland. Mm-hmm. They can contact us through info at thewayfindingcentre.ie. Are you open to all uh, with it is disability, disability It is open to all, supported by the National Transport Authority. Okay. We, and is there a cost to people? There is a small notional cost um, of 10 euros. Okay, and when are you up and running from? We will be up and running from April. Chris White, CEO of Vision Ireland, talking to Mary Wilson on Morning Ireland. Oliver Callan had the booby physio on the show this morning and no, it wasn't an episode of Callan's Kicks but a very interesting guest, Cork physio Siobhan O'Donovan. And you're very welcome back. Now, we promised to talk about boobs, Breasts, knockers, get the schoolyard skitters out of the way because we're going to talk to Siobhan O'Donovan, who's live in our Cork studio. She's founder of Posture Fitting, former Ireland rugby international as well. Good morning to you, Siobhan O'Donovan. Good morning. And are you, are you known as the booby physio or is that some 
something that they're, is that a, a mine they're trying to make me step on? No, no, no. I am now known as the booby physio. I'm <laughs> proudly wearing it across my chest as we speak. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so tell us how you are known uh, or why you're known as the booby physio. So um, that kind of comes from the fact that in the last 10 years or so, I've been focusing my physio practice on the connection between posture and breasts and the fact yes. that um, we as women have uh, an extra load that we have to deal with in terms of resisting gravity. Um, and I had spent, I've been a, f- a physio now for over 30 years and spent a lot of time, you know, working with women um, and and doing work with them to help them to strengthen uh, muscles and to be more mobile and to have less pain obviously yeah. and also because I've worked a lot with athletes as well to look at the, the performance side how you can be better in, in, in your sport um, and kind of had an epiphany one day when I kind of realised that yeah we've got actually more more weight that we have to deal with in order to keep our torso that bit more upright and all of the benefits that that brings um, so yeah since then I, I um, created a physiotherapy service which is called Posture Fitting yes. um, and I've been offering that myself in Cork and then I decided it was too good of a secret to keep down here. Yes, So for sure. um, I now train other physios and have physios across the country and in England at the moment. Um, looking at going global so if there's any physios listening anywhere around the world please get in touch um, because this is something that has made a huge difference to the women and girls that I've worked with and that all my team have worked with. And who is coming into you looking for help and what are they asking for? Well, to be honest, Oliver, any woman or girl can have this done. So um, one of the things I suppose I came at it from the perspective of seeing my patients who would have come to me when they were injured, when they were in trouble, when they had pain or when something wasn't working well. Um, But it's very much something that we all should learn as girls and and once you have that concept of how to manage your own breast weight then you're independent you're empowered to be able to get on with living the best quality of life that you can and not end up with problems that then cause you to have to go to the doctor or have to go and see a physio or have to have massage and I'm not trying to you know do any of those people out of work because obviously I'm one of them yeah. um, but at the same time I think we have a we have a big onus as healthcare professionals to talk about prevention, and that's always been something that's been in my um, my toolbox. I'm always I've always been very keen on helping people to prevent themselves coming back to me with the same problem again, um, or ideally, if I can access them before that, not having the problem at all. So um, large breasts, particularly, it can be an embarrassing problem for some women, particularly if they want to get involved in sports. They, they kind of step away from sports in many ways because of it. Yeah, and that's been one of the things that, to be honest, you know, when I started this as a service, we're a very evidence-based profession. So I needed to be able to prove to my colleagues and to, to my patients, um, you know, that this was something that was valid and, uh, you know, had had a, a basis behind it that was fundamentally scientific. Um, so I've done a lot of research and a lot of reading into studies and things that have been done. And and yeah, I mean, it's very much opened my eyes to um, a, a problem very much hidden in plain sight, but also something that has caused women be, and girls behavioural changes that may not have necessarily been picked up as being because of their breasts. So, for example... There's a study done in the UK in 2014 of 250 women and 17% of those women were not active, not adhering to or complying or reaching minimum recommended standards of activity because of their breast weight. Now, that may have been because of pain. It may have been breast pain or it may have been shoulder, upper back, neck pain or 
and or embarrassment, as you just said, about excessive breast movement. And like when women and, and this isn't always large breasted and this is something that I think, you know, it's really important for me to get across. Our breasts are heavy regardless of whether we are the smallest that we think we are or not. They're still a weight and they are going to move and all breasts move and they move more when we exercise. So if we can minimise the amount of movement then uh, that in itself will encourage people to be more active because they're not going to be embarrassed and thinking that everybody's looking at them um, or just simply being too uncomfortable to move. Yeah, uh, You believe most women are, are wearing the wrong size bra? Um, I more than believe it, to be honest. Um, I've seen it. We've all seen it. The stats will tell you 80%. Um, and so far in our experience, we haven't yet met a single woman wearing the right bra. Are you serious? Mm. Oh, everyone who comes into you? Everyone so far and, and all my team. too small, too big? Um, it varies. Uh, it, it does vary. So there's a technique that has been used in the, in the past, which uh, was used when there was no elastic, um, which is now inaccurate because we mm. now have elastic. Um, and sometimes that is the situation where women will come in and they have um, their, the band size is too big because they may have been somewhere and may have been measured that way. Or more often than not, it, people just haven't been measured or fitted at all. Um, and they are just wearing something. I mean, I literally, before I started to do this, I just went into a department store and I bought something that covered me. I, and I was, I mean, at the time I was a PE teacher and I was a physio so uh, or I then went on to become a physio so I had a bit of background knowledge um, mm. but I didn't have any background knowledge about breasts so I had no concept of the fact that a bra was actually supposed to support me I just thought it was supposed to cover me yeah. um, and I'm not alone in that you know women don't know what they don't know The difference that it makes when, when they get the correct size bra um, like So for us, and I mean, you said this earlier in the introduction, which I was really um, grateful for the fact that you said, for me, it's more than just the bra. Mm -hmm. So the bra is an external support. And in the same way as, you know, you put any external support onto a structure, um, that structure is going to be externally supported by it, but it's not necessarily going to be a sustainable situation. So an, the external support of a bra will absolutely change a person's breast position if it is the correct fit. Mm -hmm. What will then happen is the bra will stretch because the fabric in the bra will stretch. So then the breast tissue will, will go into what I like to call dipped headlights again. If you have an internal assistance to that, which is where the postural side comes in, right. you have a much more sustainable situation mm -hmm. because by being better supported, the muscles that are supporting you to stay better supported will get stronger. And those are not in the breast. Everybody thinks that the pecs support our breasts. They don't. The reason why we all go to dipped headlights is because we have no muscular support whatsoever on the front of our bodies. Um, and it, literally, we are being held in position by the skin. And the skin stretches. That's where the physio comes in. Yeah, that's where the, the bit of it that we do, which is where we look at somebody's posture. And, you know, I can I, I and my team, we can change somebody's breast position relative to the floor by giving them postural cues. So if we do that, which is your internal and then they wear the optimally, optimally fitting bra, which is your external, put the two of those together. You've gone from dipped headlights to full beam to high beam. Yeah, OK. 
It's a, it's a lovely image, the dipped headlights, the full beam and so on. But it, it, makes, it makes a psychological difference as well, doesn't it? Massively, massively. And again, that's the other thing that I think has been a bit of an eye-opener for me. Um, so my focus as a physio has been about helping people to have better quality of life in terms of feeling well and in terms of moving well. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, traditionally within that field, we're not supposed to be focusing very much on aesthetics. Mm-hmm. But when a woman stands in front of the mirror and sees her waist again that she hasn't seen for years or that she hasn't missed because she hasn't known that she hasn't seen it for years. It's actually really, really empowering for them. Yes. And and that was the thing for me when I kind of started this journey first. Physically, I was fine because I was playing rugby at the time. So I wasn't, you know, in, well, it was a bit after that, but... Um, I wasn't I wasn't suffering, so I didn't notice a difference in the point of view of pain. But I certainly noticed a difference from a confidence perspective. Really? And I wow. was a scrum half, so I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't short on confidence, <laughs> to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um but it yeah, massive difference. It just makes you feel like you can take on the world. And and you know, I talk to my patients about this all the time and they will see the difference in themselves. They kind of Without putting too, you know, too kind of drastic a point on it, you can see the difference in terms of them giving to gravity and basically being kind of not downtrodden, but looking kind of like the world is on top yeah. of them to literally being like, screw you, gravity. I am ready to take on the world. That's you the lift just give you it want, to me. isn't it? Yeah. And As it's literally, I mean, the puns are absolutely yeah, endless, yeah, but it is uplifting in ways that, you know, I, I just, I'm. It's, it's incredibly empowering both for us as physios to see that happening to women, but also to the women themselves. Empowering, enlightening, everything. Love it. Uh, this person is texting in the they have an upper back injury from a fracture a few years ago from a car accident. Uh, they're bigger boobed, wondering what she can do going forward. Um, well, you know, the easy answer is to say to get in touch because I, I have physios in, in various different places around the country. Okay. Um, uh, the, the approach that we are taking is unique. It's unique within physiotherapy and it's, it's unique within, um, I suppose, the lingerie world as well in that we're taking what you could get from a shop and we're taking what you can get from a physio and we're combining the two of those together. Um, but uh, it, it absolutely can make a difference. Uh, can you ask the physio, uh, this person, she's seven months pregnant at the moment. Boobs have gone from 34B to 36C at least. Every support bra I wear gives me a feeling like heartburn. Is there any brand she can recommend that offers support without being restrictive across the chest? So I'm going to answer that question by not answering that question right. because I'm going to say the bigger picture here is being fitted correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, so the B's and C cups are actually really nowhere near as common and as frequent as they appear to be. I, that's what I was buying. That's because that's what the shops were selling. Yeah. So in the reality, most of us are bigger cups than we realise. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if we're not in the right fit, a bra is never going to feel comfortable. I mean, one of my goals, and and you know this has happened, is that women don't even know they're wearing a bra. So if you are one of those people who is desperate to take your bra off and you're constantly fiddling and twisting and pushing this here and lifting the strap and doing something else to it, then it's the wrong fit. So to go back to your listener's question, um, rather than me recommend a specific brand, I would say it's more about the fit. And then once you've got your optimal fit, then you have the choice 
of choosing from brands with an, with the knowledge that you're going to be choosing correctly as opposed to relying on the brand to get it right for you. Uh, can you ask your physiotherapist if she can help older older women get the lift to front beam at least? Um, this, is the, this is the issue around the menopause, isn't there? That yeah. breast sizes actually increase. Yeah, very often. I mean, it's very individual. So uh, for some people, they don't increase, but very often they do. And um, also sometimes if women start on HRT, that can also, obviously because it's hormonal, that can affect breast size as well. Um, and yes, again, you know, I keep coming back to it's about having the knowledge. It's about having the awareness. It's about knowing what to do. And absolutely, yes, you can be. Uh, we it, it, it works for all ages, all life stages. And that would be a real boost, wouldn't it? What should be worn for aqua aerobics? I've noticed my breast starting to sag. And that's great a great question because one of the areas that really hasn't been catered for very well is swimwear. Um and there you can now get swimwear that is um cup um focused in that, you know, it, it, it is a cup size as opposed to small, medium, large, extra large. Yeah. Um so you can go into a lingerie store and buy cup size swimwear, which is definitely better. Than, uh, the, uh, than the options that we had before, which was literally just a piece of material just compressing us. Um, from a, the point of view of performance, performance sportswear, I think our swimwear is still an area that um, could be improved upon. But uh-huh. there, there is a little bit of an awareness starting with that now. Um, I would, you know, I have, in the absence of anything better, I have suggested to people to wear a well-fitting sports bra underneath their swimsuit. Um Obviously, that then is going to affect the uh, life of the sports bra because it's not expecting to be in a chlorinated mm. environment or to be in a salt environment if you're brave enough to be out in the sea. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, that that would be a recommendation that I make to people when there is no other option. Yeah. Um, so it's about making we the really best. Physiotherapist Siobhan O'Donovan on the Oliver Callan Show this morning. Stress and the best way to manage it was one of the topics on Today with Claire Byrne and Dr Maura Finn, a Claire-based GP, joined the presenter to discuss and answer listeners' questions. I did say there at the beginning that stress is a normal part of life, isn't it? We shouldn't forget that. Oh, it is. And it's it's necessary. You know, if, if you're that traditionally, you know, if you're crossing the road and a car comes, you have to run and kind of protect yourself. So stress is an involuntary physiological response to a threat or something unpleasant. And we it motivates us, us and it kind of makes us function. However, if it's sustained or unrelenting, um, it can cause problems from mm. emotional point of view and physical point of view. And, and that's... That's the difficult thing. It's identifying when that happens. Yeah, and that's really what we want to talk about is how do you know that you should be worried about this and you should be doing something about it? So if you have, well, first of all, if you have kind of an unrelenting. So what happens in your body is that there's this response, which is kind of, like I say, involuntary from a part of your brain called the hypothalamus. It affects the pituitary and it causes hormones to be released like adrenaline and cortisol that make your heart race, make your acid in your tummy. They, you know, you make your palms sweat and you breathe in properly. And all people will recognise those things in the short term. If that response is kind of repeated or sustained, those things are happening on an ongoing basis. And if that's affecting your daily life, then therefore it is abnormal and needs to be addressed. People will recognise things like um, 
brain fog and inability to make decisions or poor sleep or, um, you know, quick to anger, quick to tears as being something that can be related to stress. But there's many, many other symptoms that you mightn't recognise, which are the more physical ones, which you don't have any control over. It's not in your head. Mm -hmm. They are a physical response to this threat Mm -hmm. um, or or perceived threat that has been kind of maintained over a period of time. So can you talk to us a little bit? I mean, we touched on it there, the sweaty palms and so Mm -hmm. on, but the physical symptoms that people mightn't think for a second are related to stress. Well, this is it. So, so like I said, you know, you have this hormone response that makes your heart pump. So you'd have a tachycardia, which is a heart rate above 100. If that's sustained, that's not good for your heart. It's not good for your blood vessels. It can cause chronic issues like cardiovascular disease. Um, issues like um, diabetes, because the cortisol causes an, a, a change in how we metabolise glucose. Again, it can be a long-term effect. Really? Of, yeah. Long-term effect of stress. There's some, you know, there's so many chronic diseases that we know instinctively are actually related to chronic stress but you can't always prove them Um, but like that heaviness in the heart the tachycardia I was talking about neck pains shoulder pains headaches headaches are a very very frequent presentation Mm. of stress particularly that tension headache you know the band around your head like that that is a a direct response to to the stress sometimes things then like migraine can be triggered by a stress response feeling dizzy feeling fatigued um, sleep is a huge one obviously you know pe- when you are stressed you tend your mind is busy you're not sleeping well then poor sleep has an effect on other physical functions as well um, heartburn is a really common one sexual dysfunction is very common f- um, um, relation to stress as well so just these huge amount of physical symptoms that people will often present with and they won't have recognised that it may be because of their underlying stressful situation so it can affect just about everything and anything absolutely yeah uh, sometimes when we talk about these issues or say for example we might be doing a piece on exercise in here and we'll have an expert in who'll say you must get your exercise we'll get messages from people saying I don't have time I don't have time on this one we'll have people saying I just have a stressful job it's stressful all of the time and I can't escape that and they'll be looking for ways to manage stress would you be radical and say change your job well, I mean, I'm sure you and I both would have <laughs> a similar idea that, you know, we have stressful jobs. Can we change our jobs? No. But what you do is you you identify the sources of stress. You're unlikely to have stress in every single part of your life. So you identify the bits that you can change and the bits that you can't change. And I, and I see people all the time that have many situations. Like sometimes I have seen people who I know have intolerable stress in their home situation and they don't recognise that their physical symptoms they're coming in to me mm-hmm. are related to that. So what I have to do is help kind of guide them into a situation where, look, at let's break it down. What's happening? Is this work? Is this home? Is this the commute? Is it family? Is it illness? Is it, you know, financial strain? And all the things that we all kind of struggle with. And you fix the things you can. You can't fix everything. So you have to identify the things that are actually kind of manageable. If somebody's in a situation and toxic work environments or something I see very, very frequently and people come in to me about them and not always looking for certs or anything, they're looking, they're not even I, I recognising that that's their source of stress. Um, but if that is a major problem, they have to kind of look at it through kind of going to HR, talking to their employer, looking at different ways of managing their time. Um, do they have an equal kind of uh, the home situation? Is that balanced in a better way? Women often take on the massive kind of home work yes, you know, yeah. situation and the emotional mm-hmm. burden around that. Um That's all in an ideal world. None of us do this perfectly and all of us have to recognise that we have stress in our lives. 
but to recognize when it becomes toxic is really important, but also to recognize that, you know, OK, it's inevitable to a certain extent and make time and make time for you, you know, even if it's only 15 minutes of a day, like like I am the first one to tell people to go and exercise and do yoga and stuff. And I can't remember the last time I did it myself. Right. Do but as I, will I go say. Out, yeah, I know. But I will go out and walk the dog. And, you know, I, I will kind of, you know, that 10 minutes when you come in the door from work is really important that maybe you're not overwhelmed with everything you have to do. If you can have a few minutes to yourself, you just need to kind of build in techniques into your day so that you can manage it. And you're not doing that just for you. You're doing for the people around you too and to make your life and your career more sustainable mm-hmm. you know and the, you, your children need to see if you have children they need to see that you have a stressful situation but that you can manage it because they learn from us and they you know they they see that you know they can't live a, a, a perfect life where they are immune from stress but they actually need to learn that well this is difficult so mammy does it this way or daddy does it this way and I'll try and do something yeah, similar. I remember years ago an older woman saying to me back when I thought I was very busy but I wasn't really because I didn't <laughs> have you know the, all the things to do that I have now but she said to me if you can't take an hour of the day out for yourself in 24 then there is something wrong. Now, I know we look at the day and we think, well, I'd never be able to take an hour for myself, but really we should be getting close to that just to to take a breath. Absolutely. And, and that's, a, that's really powerful. But the problem I sometimes see, with, particularly with mothers, is that that hour can be at like 11 o'clock at night. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> when they should be. It's because everything's done. You're taking from Peter then to pay Paul. Exactly. You know, so affected. you do need to have good sleep as well to help you function properly. So... so when people are coming into you, I mean, you've mentioned a lot, you know, working mothers may be taking the burden um, and, and that can be a problem. Is that typical of the scenario when people come to you and say, I'm having these issues and I don't know what it is and you can immediately see it's stress related? I often see it straight away, but we sometimes, it's it's a really difficult situation for both the medics and the patients. You sometimes need to go through the, you know, if somebody presents with a heaviness in their chest, you don't go, that's stress I'll talk to you about it. You investigate it and you make sure there's no other underlying physical cause. And that may seem like it's kind of medicalizing an issue, but you need to do that to reassure them and yourself because, you know, there's, you, it's difficult to untangle all the difficult, you know, different uh, symptoms associated with stress and other physical illnesses. But once you actually acknowledge it as stress, that's when the hard work really begins, because then mm. they have to go back and actually really reevaluate their lives. And frequently it's back to looking at things from you know, start from scratch again and see how you can manage your daily life. Okay, I have some questions coming in um, okay. for you. I'm wondering how to help a sixth year student deal with stress. He's finding everything overwhelming right now to the extent that it's paralysing him and he can't do the things that he needs to do. That's really difficult. And and that, again, it's back to basics with that poor person because, you know, okay, sixth year, he's obviously under stress with the exams. There may be other stuff that's going on too. Um, it He has to look at it from the point of view of, what is the biggest thing here? What is the goal? Like, is he under pressure because he wants to achieve really high points? Is it because he um, is missing out on other kind of activities in school because he's got exams coming on? And really talk, you know, and maybe that lad doesn't actually realise that he's stressed. The mm-hmm. parents can see it, but he doesn't. And he's kind of thinking, sure, I'm grand, but not sleeping at night, maybe actually even using drugs or alcohol or something else as a as a coping mechanism. So uh, communication and acknowledging the issue is the the first part there. 
and then obviously looking at study techniques and kind of talking to the school and uh, maybe talking to a counsellor and there's so many supports out there now so frequently our role is to actually kind of point people in the direction of where they go to get the supports um, you know be it MABs be it counselling be it you know marital counselling um, alcohol and addiction services we, you know we don't fix the stress for a lot of people you just Anne says that she's holding her breath these days and she doesn't realise she's doing it until she can't, can feel it, you know, that she, she can't breathe. And she wants to know, mm. is that stress? I would say Anne's already answered her question there. I, I think she has. And actually, that's a, it's, quite, it's something I used to do and sometimes do. And you just, you suddenly realise you're sighing and it's because you're letting out this breath that you've been holding. And letting holding, your holding. shoulders down. Exactly. <laughs> and you do that maybe involuntarily after a period of time, but it's not good. Can you imagine how, you know, your lungs aren't functioning properly, your shoulders are up, your neck is stressed. All of those things have, you know, that causes pain. Pain causes its own stress response. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. Mm. So Anne, definitely, she's actually recognised there's a problem. Now she goes and tries to find out what's causing it. If there's just probably a few small things, fix the things you can and then find time for yourself and find these breathing techniques are really valuable, actually. And I think we all recognise that. And there's always people talking about them, but we still don't do them as frequently as we should. But, you know, for those shallow breaths, like using your belly breath, that is hugely important. Um, and kind of breathing through your nose and out and taking time to do it. Because not only are you breathing properly and using your lungs and physiological processes properly, you're also taking a minute, mm-hmm. which is the thing, isn't it? You know, so when do we take a minute normally? I, I wonder, is it best for Anne to employ those breathing exercises when she is notices that she's holding her breath or should it be at peacetime during the well, day? This is it. When you're when she's holding her breath, she's already stressed and will eventually kind of realise that. Ideally, what we do is we do it at different times during the day so you preempt it. Prevent, prevention is always mm. better than, than trying to find a, an answer when it's too late. Dr. Maura Finn on Today with Claire Byrne. New rules around the wearing of beards, jewellery, makeup and nail polish comes into effect for members of the Defence Forces tomorrow. It's hoped the move will have a positive impact on army recruitment here. Sergeant Major Keith Caffrey spoke to Brian Dobson about the new rules on the News at One today. When the Commission on Defence Forces report came out, one of the recommendations was that we reviewed our personal appearance standards or grooming standards is what it's titled as. I was tasked last year to review the standards and a group of senior NCOs came together and we analysed what was there, looked at best practice internationally um, and nationally mm-hmm. and then considered recommendations to be made going forward to the general staff, which is now the Defence Board. And the recommendations we made were all to do with people's personal appearance. So not per se to do with the wearing of the mm-hmm. uniform, mm-hmm. but how you present yourself. So, for example, in relation to female members of the Defence Forces, there are some quite significant changes, some, some, some quite significant relaxation in, in the way they, they groom and present themselves. There is indeed. Um, there's areas in relation to cosmetics and how they can be worn. Um, for example, tanning products or nail varnish and other makeup products. But there's also um, amendments in relation to how female personnel can wear their hairstyles. So previously you would have had to wear it in a, a bun with a net securing it or you had short hair. 
we try to be as progressive as possible with health and safety um, and operational effectiveness in mind. So what we did was we broke down into different categories of operations and training, induction training and routine mm -hmm. taskings. Um, so now females can have up to six different ways to wear their hairstyles. Mm. I'm also looking in relation to, to uh, cosmetics. Um, they may wear cosmetics applied conservatively. Uh, I, I, that's, yes. that's, kind of, that's sort of in the eye of the beholder or the person who's applying it, isn't it? It is, um, and common sense prevails. What's throughout the whole document is whether it's nail varnish, earrings, how you wear your hair, nothing should detract from the uniform. Yeah, so for example, I see there actually are colours given for, for, the, for the nail varnish and my uh, female colleagues here at the office tell me they go from what's described as nude through to a kind of baby pink and, and just those, uh, that colour range, that's all that's permitted. It is indeed. Um, what we've done with the document and with all the amendments we've made, we've given examples and tried to remove the ambiguity that previously existed in the old document. Um, so we've been progressive in what we've allowed. We have to remember we are a military force mm -hmm. and in addition we're trying to be as inclusive as possible um, and as diverse as possible but we do have to respect the uniform that we wear and make sure anything we do complements the uniform. And in relation to the men there's one big change which is that beards, the wearing of a beard may be permitted but, but a, a soldier has to or a member of the forces has to get permission for that. Yes, absolutely. So previously, um, certain units would have been allowed to wear beards for operational reasons, um, or you could mm -hmm. go to a doctor and get medically excused. So now we've removed that requirement. So if an individual wishes to wear a beard, they will apply to their unit commander, and the unit commander, there are specific reasons to not approve it, particularly in the operational environment. But so people will apply and they'll be inspected throughout the period that they're growing the beard. Because some people just can't grow a beard. And then there's regulations in relation to the length of the beard, straight lines under the cheekbones and an inch above the Adam's apple. Now, there are also some prohibitions which are being brought in in relation to tattoos, the wearing of certain types of jewellery. And they're, re they're all around um, and not, um, as, as the, 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 the document says, uh, degrading or d demeaning somebody else. Yes. What we've done, what we've included in relation to tattoos, you cannot have anything that depicts extremism, sexism or racists or anything that promotes um, substance abuse tattooed onto your body. This is, if you consider some of the areas that we work in, people will take offence to certain tattoos. So we've regulated what you can have, but more particularly what you cannot have. And, and Sergeant Major Caffrey, is, is it the hope that all of this would, would help to improve uh, recruitment, encourage people to consider the Defence Forces, perhaps people who, who mightn't have looked at it before as a career option? It is one aspect. Um, this is one measure of a multiple multitude of measures that we are changing and transforming currently. Um, and this is about respecting the individual, allowing them to be themselves, but at the same time regulating to be a military mm -hmm. force. Yes, it was a recommendation in the Commission report, but we've analysed this ex a lot. We've done a huge amount of work in this. And we have traditionalists within the force who don't agree with all of this, but what they are crystal clear on is if we make an amendment, we regulate that amendment so we can enforce it or the individual understands what the regulation says. And, and there might there, there could be further changes coming down the track as well? There could indeed. We have another group who are currently looking at um, religious and cultural beliefs. They'll engage with key leaders within communities 
explain what we are, what we offer, and then we need to consider differences between the Ireland that we did know and the Ireland of 2024. So we're trying to be as progressive and get our homework done early so we can attract the diverse community that is Ireland of today. Sergeant Major Keith Caffrey speaking to Brian Dobson on the News at One. Finally today, bilingual comedian Anya Gallagher was on the Oliver Callan show to share her scale. Whenever people hear that I do kind of bilingual comedy or I'm trying to advertise it, they're like, oh no, but I wouldn't understand a word. No, I couldn't do that. That's not for me. Um, so obviously they're the exact people I'm trying to get in. To. How do you relax people then at the start of the show? What's the start of your gig like? Uh, I tell stories, you know, like mm. you mentioned the gold fauna there at the yes. start. So um, and people always assume that I'm from a native speaking background and that I'm fluent myself but I've just learned it in school like the average person and learned it the hard way and with the gold fauna in particular so it's if anyone doesn't realise it's the little pin you get to yes. say that you're fluent you wear it around and then you can talk to other people who have there's the gold. a silver there's a it? silver and a bronze as well so oh, there a bronze? yeah yeah Never so if you're that. learning it's bronze or silver or gold once you're okay. fluent um but one thing I did to learn Irish uh, was I, st- I played Gaelic football with an Irish speaking team, which was right. a great opportunity to immerse myself in Irish. Mm-hmm. But I was terrified for my whole experience. And it was really a kind of a very transformative. It took a lot of years for me to become comfortable with Irish. Um, and there was one time we were at a dinner dance and after I'd been sitting at the table with eight of them and I literally, I just had to nod and hope for the whole conversation, hope that no one would ask me a question because I could not understand anything that was going on. One of the guys, I was sitting there at the end, one of the guys came up to me, he's like, are you all right? I was like, no, my, I've been here for two years and I still can't speak Irish. Like, And he goes, but I, and we were speaking in Irish. He's like, "Nach will to an end raw." Like, are you able to say everything you want to say? Mm-hmm. I was like, "I suppose so." August nach will to an end Can't you understand everything? Like when it's one on one, and he. I said, I suppose so. And then at the time, he was wearing his gold fornia, <laughs> right. and he gave it to me. Yeah, he oh. ga- he took it off and he gave it to me, and it was a real moment for me to be like, "Oh, Passing maybe maybe my Irish is better." Than I thought it was, but the, the, but then um, the problem with that two weeks later I was going to Orasanukteron, and I to meet Michael D Higgins. I thought it would be a great idea to wear the gold fauna. Um <laughs> The problem with doing that is Michael D Higgins saw it. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously he spoke Lucky to me yeah. in Irish and then I could I didn't understand a word he said. It was the most embarrassing encounter I've ever had. So to answer your question, Oliver, I looked away in shame. It was so awful. He said something, you know, something beautiful, something beautiful. And I was like, oh, um, I, re- I actually do remember, and this is humiliating. I said, oh, well, to make the interview, like I make it an effort. He just looked at You're me like. You're getting embarrassed even right now. I know. It is actually traumatic. But so. Were well, you dismissed I, then? And he did. He moved on. He, he moved on to the next person. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I um, This is, you know, you're asking me how I relax people in my shows. It's I tell my own stories of mm-hmm. love, like the embarrassing situations that I've been through. Also, also the things that have been very exciting for me to give me confidence but I think sharing those personal stories help people and to disarm them to let them know that I'm not perfect and we're just here to have a good time You need confidence to do comedy anyway live yeah. on stage but, but the guerrilla tactics you're talking about are 
You've, you've brought it to a different level. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if people don't want to employ you, you have to find your own way to do it. <laughs> Tell us you about know? your residence in a cafe. Yeah, that was fun. Last summer I was in a Little Red Cafe in Portobello and I was doing once a week uh, gorilla Irish. I called it a cup of fuckles. So they have a, a, a window seat. You can just perch there. Yeah. And I, I was perched with a literal cup of fuckles. So I'd written all these fuckles on little cards oh. and put them in a cup. Yeah. And as people would walk in the door, I'd say, Dear Witch, just doing a bit of Gorilla Irish. Do you want a fuckle? And um, sometimes people would take, yeah, most ran. <laughs> no, actually, do you know, it was surprising the amount of lovely interactions I had and I thought it was such a I didn't know if it was even a good idea but committing to it I did it for four months once a week and there were so many just lovely interactions with people I remember one woman took out one and it was Orlor and the 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 idea is they'd take it out and then they'd either they'd guess the word or maybe I'd help them understand the word or if they knew a bit of Irish we'd have have a little chat chat. yeah exactly so it was a prompt um so it was Orlor and she goes and then she stopped. And I think it just really shows like the fear that people have, like even a simple word. She knew what it meant, but she was scared to say it out loud just in case she was going to be wrong. Yeah. Um. So I just gave her a minute. I didn't say anything, just probably smiled at her encouragingly. And then she was like, floor. And then... Like, you've never seen two people get so excited about the word floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, what a conversation starter, yeah. the uh, orler yeah. on orler. Yeah, I know, on... you'd be surprised. But it was really simple and just this idea of trying to have fun, non-threatening conversations with people using a bit of Irish and just breaking down those barriers a little bit. And you seem non-threatening. I mean, it's not the vibe kneecap are currently going <laughs> no, for. No, I would call myself more of a gentle bam than a than <laughs> yes, kneecap. Yes, yes but. mind you, there was always that great kneecapum joke, wasn't there, for um, republicanism? Oh, <laughs> that's very good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an I oldie. That's an yeah, old. We're sure yeah, that you yeah, could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a moment of terror coming across the Kneecapum just means, yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. You could have been an occupational therapist, so there is a oh. connection, I think, here, okay. where you're trying to take people's fear away. Yeah. And suddenly, um, well, tell us about your. You, you know how how do you almost become an occupational? Well, I therapist? was an occupational. Oh, you therapist. were okay. You did it. Yeah. So you know, you did the traditional way, studied it in college, and then got a job after that. No um, degrees in comedy yet. Uh, no degrees in no. comedy as of yet or hint, in guerrilla Irish so yeah I worked in it in the health service for five years I, I just I suppose long story short I didn't enjoy it it wasn't for me I realise now I'm a, a more creative person but what I am really interested in is community health so and, and, and your last guest was talking about, you know, health prevention. Yeah. And I think the arts and comedy uh, does so much work to, you know, by us just sharing stories and relating to each other. It, Fair point, you know, yeah. it's, it's huge in terms of community health. You know, even your last guest, I think, to hear more people coming from perspectives like that on stage, telling their stories in a fun way mm-hmm. um, is is huge and also would really help promote these kind of ideas within the community, raise awareness about different things. Breasts and Algoelga. We need all more breasts in comedy. That's what I'm saying. Well, I mean, it's amazing that they've, uh, Siobhan O'Donnell has never met a woman who hasn't, who has the correct bra size. So tell everyone Algoelga. Yeah. It's the Irish for bra, by the way. Bra all. 
I don't know. Bravo. Don't ask me. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, God, we should have checked. Because <laughs> um, lovely things, um, someone upstairs was saying that uh, their child was asking, what does fetch was fetch mean and automatically thought, oh, the child has now discovered mean girl somewhere on the radio who oh, yeah. was actually talking about fake. Oh. So, you know, stop trying to make f- uh, fake a thing. You yeah. know, there's, there's yeah. something there you could develop. Okay. <laughs> Let's Thanks do it now on tips. air. You sound like my dad giving <laughs> me tips. Yeah. Oh, really? Does he give you? Uh, no, I mean, people are always... <laughs> Have you used any of them? <laughs> um... Look, I mean, tips my, are not my welcome. Do not text. answer is it's you know it has to be personal. I do believe comedy has to be your own personal observations and stories. You must have a Donegal connection. Yes, I yeah. presume that's why. So, yes, Anya, which is Anya in some parts of the country. Anya, exactly, but it's the Donegal dialect. Yeah, it's kind of a prettier way, actually, isn't it? It's not how Anya became Anya because she was from Dunyanyal. I believe she's Ethna, and then she oh, went right. kind of went the phonetical way with that. But it would be a good assumption and. Perhaps, yeah. I think it's pre- it is pretty, but it's unusual. It's 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 exotic, I suppose. <laughs> you know, if Anya was the unusual one, we'd think that was nicer, maybe. Uh, it's kind of off offbeat, offbeat comedy. My style, yeah. Is that because you think Irish is somewhat offbeat? We treat it like that often, well, don't it's we? It's not that mainstream. Mm. Or it it's becoming mainstream. It's, well, a it's at the Oscars, I suppose it doesn't all, get any more mainstream. That's fair. That's actually yeah. a fair point. Um, it's having a moment, though, isn't it? It's definitely having a moment. Yeah. yeah. And Quite a long one. So a long one, a which is exciting. Yeah. 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 I think, um, like, certainly Paul Meskell's speech on the on the BAFTA red carpet last year was a huge was a huge eye opener. I think for the nation of how excited we all, like. There's so much energy for Irish, for sure. Despite having foundation level um, junior third Irish. Yeah, but I think <laughs> because even... Brendan Lisa has beautiful, fluent Irish and people barely noticed that he'd, yeah. he'd spoken Irish yeah. <laughs> at I the know. Oscars. But what I'm I trying... Paul Mesk was at the BAFTAs, in fact, wasn't it? It was the BAFTAs, yeah, it was mm. the BAFTAs, yeah. But, I mean, even if it's foundation level junior third Irish that you have, I think my argument is you actually do probably know a lot more than you expect yourself to. Yeah. And it can be accessible for us all. I can't think of anything better than comedy as a way to kind of loosen loosen us up mm-hmm. and think about it and get, get into the swing of it. Uh, tell us about your interest. You're not just interested in Irish because we said you're a dork. Yeah. Uh, you're also into STEM subjects as well. Well, I worked in with Bright, uh, uh, a company called Bright Club that trained researchers to do comedy and talk about their about their work so I love learning about anything really <laughs> uh, birds or bugs or um, yeah uh, you're fascinated yeah, any, by anything I'm dorky. fascinated by anything yeah ribbons I like collecting ribbons you know. <laughs> okay <laughs> Just ribbons in general? Do you, do you wear them? No, do you, use I, them? Do you know, I Just collect a lot of them and then I think I have better kick this habit because I don't know what to do with any of these ribbons. <laughs> You're just figuring things out, <laughs> yeah. just gently. It's called For the Love of Milshawn. It's going to be in the Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin on the 16th of March, That's so around right. yeah. Law Fodrick. And you're going on national tour, Dublin, Kilkenny and Galway across March and April. We wish you... Comedian Anya Gallagher on The Oliver Callan Show. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.